following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So as, uh, as Michael rightly pointed out, uh, many of you might remember or recognize my voice. Uh, 18 years in all I spent uh, in Christian media. I started off at Life FM uh, when I was young and single. Uh, back in those days, it was the Parachute Festival. I found out one year there was a drinking game, Parachute Festival, there was a drinking game where you would drink if you saw a member of the Life FM announcing team. Apparently, you had to drink twice if you saw me. So maybe I was like the unicorn or something, I don't know. So uh, at Life FM, spent a few years there. Then I got married, so I had to graduate. Spent uh, nine years uh, on Rima, about seven years on The Breakfast Show. That's 2007. I remember that because it was the third year in a row I'd gone to Macedonia to help do some church planter training. And in the third year, my clothes didn't arrive, my luggage didn't arrive. And it was the only shirt in the whole country that fit me was their national football shirt. So I remember that well. Uh, and then, of course, I finally graduated and became old enough to go to uh, be the afternoon announcer on Star, where Christian DJs go to die. Uh, that's probably not quite fair. Uh, it's fair to say, though, there were times where I thought that the slogan of the station should have been songs to slip into heaven by. And there were some days where I did pray, Lord, take me. <laughs> so... Uh, if I'm familiar, perhaps it's for the radio. Uh, those out west uh, will know me perhaps because my wife Debbie and I pastored a church called Harvest for 15 years. Uh, there's me obviously teaching something Jewish with my talit on. Uh, I like uh, living out west. It's a fun place to live. It's nice to live in a part of the city where the biggest fashion decision I have to make is which pair of slippers to wear to pack and save. I prefer to wear my tiger slippers. That way I can pretend I'm hunting my food. That kind of like. Uh, I was talking to, uh, to Errol and to Carol uh, this morning, and uh, Carol was very kind to say that she'd met some very nice Westies. And it's true, some of us are very nice. But I do want to be honest. We do have a bit of a crime problem. We do have a drug problem. Uh, one of my neighbors is trying to sell tinnies from the front of his house with an honesty box. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a little weird. Uh, so I've spent a good chunk of my life on air and uh, on the pulpit preaching. And in the last six years, have also had my own counseling uh, ministry. I have a master's degree in psychology and a few years ago did some training with Living Wisdom and Strength to Strength. And it's really probably from that worldview that we'll talk some more this morning. So our foundational kind of idea is that we are to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. Not the removal, but the renewing of our minds. Now, for many of us, we'll start with this thought. We've perhaps figured that renewing your mind as a Christian is something that would just happen. You'd come to church and you'd hear God's Word, and you'd be renewed. Or maybe you'd be super disciplined and actually read the Bible in your own time, and you would be renewed. And sometimes we are. But other times we're a bit like that ad. Remember that ad many years ago, the Colgate ad, where, you know, uh, she used to dip the chalk into the ink, and she'd crack it open, and she'd say, it does get in. Uh, you know, we hope that the Word will get in. 
But as someone who was a pastor for 15 years, I can tell you, sometimes it doesn't get in. Sometimes I think people could go to church for a million years and not shift. It turns out the renewing of your mind is an active part of the Christian experience, not a passive part. So today we're going to talk about what does it mean for it to be an active past part, and we've called this message Getting Past the Past, because it turns out that it might be the past that's making it difficult in the present to live in a way that demonstrates this renewed mind. I want to start at the beginning. It's going to be a long message if he starts in Genesis, but I'm going to start in Genesis. We want to frame our conversation this morning so that we can think biblically about the idea of our mind. We find this creation story, this origin story at the beginning of the Bible, and we find the first two original people in a garden, just them and God in paradise. Who doesn't want to go to paradise? I want to live in paradise. And there's the conclusion to the story. Very odd conclusion. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. What a curious way to conclude an origin story. And yet, there they were. The original state of human beings was to feel no shame and to not be afraid of being seen. They were naked, but they felt no shame. Now, we, we know the story. Uh, next moment, next minute, uh, Eve is hearing this invitation. You could be like God. God's actually withholding something from you. You could be like him if you just ate from that one tree that you're not supposed to eat from. Then you could become like God. Well, she buys the lie. Next thing she eats the fruit, suggests Adam might like to join in, so he eats the fruit. And then God reappears in the story, and in just a few short verses, something has changed. Adam says, I heard your voice in paradise, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. In just a few short verses, we discover that when the original human beings decided that being naked was now a problem, that they could in fact not be safe and be seen for who they really were, they went into hiding. And then God asked this most pressing question. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you? That, that was a problem? Who told you that being seen for who you really are is something you should avoid at all costs? That being seen was in fact now dangerous and that you should hide? Who told you that you were naked? And it's that question to some degree that we're going to address this morning. Because you see, somewhere in your past and in my past, and I'm going to share my story and a few others today, there's a moment where we concluded that we were in fact naked and that that was a problem, that we could not afford to be seen for who we really truly were. That we heard in the words of another person or in their tone or in their actions that there was something deficient about us and that we should, in fact, go into hiding to avoid being seen. In fact, we should try and construct some things to pretty up the mess 
some fig leaves. And this morning, I want to share some stories with you. I want to share my story so that we can understand that deep in each of us is a story about where we heard that we were naked or at least concluded. This sort of verse that the redeemed of the Lord tell their story is normally a verse we would trot out before a, a great testimony of transformation and salvation. I've got a great story. Maybe one day I'll get a chance to share that story with you, but this morning I'm not going to share that part of the story. I'm going to share a story with you of the time that I discovered and heard that I was naked. Because I realize as I look back over my life that that story is as defining about who Aaron Ironside is than what happened on June 7, 1998, where I gloriously received salvation and friendship with God. In order to tell that story, I need to go back a step and tell you a bit about my family, my mum in particular. My mum was the only child to a solo mum in an era where that was a source of great shame. The local church wouldn't christen my mum because she had been born in sin. Apparently, there had been quite a scandal around her birth. Turns out my nana had had an affair with a local politician. And when he discovered that she was pregnant, he skipped town. And that's why we vote national. When I was about seven, my nana died of bowel cancer. For my mum, that was like her whole family had died. She had no siblings. She had no dad. Her mum was the only family she'd ever known growing up. My mum was devastated. And it must have been very close to Mother's Day. It must have been around about this time of year that nana died because my mum was still in the throes of grief and depression when Mother's Day emerged. And it must have been so close to those events that my dad had forgotten it was Mother's Day. So he came to me at about nine o'clock on that Sunday morning and said, Aaron, it's Mother's Day. Here's some money. Go down to the supermarket and buy one of those sampler boxes of biscuits. Remember the old sampler box? Man, I love that box. And so I uh, went and bought the box and I'm walking back home and I'm thinking, it's a good day. I love my mum. It's Mother's Day, and I'm going to have that biscuit and that biscuit and that biscuit. It's going to be a good day. Well, my mum still hadn't appeared from the bedroom that day, and so I snuck into her bedroom, and I presented her with this Mother's Day gift. She looked at the biscuits and threw them on the floor and said, You've forgotten Mother's Day. You're a terrible son. Well, I was only about seven, and so I ran from the room, ran to my bedroom and burst into tears. My dad kind of knew that it was his fault this moment had happened, so he tried to soften my mum and went in to try and sort of calm her down. But in the calming of her down, at no point did anyone ever come and undo those words. And those words, you're a terrible son, got burnt onto my heart. And I would carry those words with me for decades. 
Let me skip forward a few years. It was high school, and it was the first year of high school, and I'd been a very average student up until that point, uh, but something about high school just stimulated me, and suddenly I was a straight-A student. Suddenly I was top of the class. And I remember my parents coming to a parent-teacher evening in the middle of the year, and I was sitting out in some sort of foyer area waiting for them, and they were coming between visits, and they came to me, and they were beaming. The maths teacher had said, your son is so bright that he could do school cert, NCEA, this year and pass. And they were brimming with relief and happiness. So I thought I'd learned something. Oh, I see. That's how you not be a terrible son, if you can just perform well enough. That's my story. A friend of mine's story is that when he was a teenager, there was a knock at the door close to dinner time, and some of his friends came to the, the door, and his dad answered the door, and the dad did not know my friend was listening down the end of the hallway. So he heard the exchange. The friends from the neighborhood said, can he come out and play football before dinner time in the streets? And he heard his dad say this, no, he can't come because he's useless. words burnt into his soul. Who told you you were naked? Who told you there was something about you that didn't measure up and that you needed to hide and couldn't afford to be seen for who you really are? I've been working for the last six months for an organization that works out in South Auckland. Tafako Ora Tangata is the name of the organization. That's a mouthful. It means life restoration for the people. Every year, 130 Māori people get saved as they go through a course where they discover about their brokenness and the things that have happened. And, you know, I, I thought my story was traumatic until I met this man. This is Robert Brown. Robert used to be one of the 20 most violent offenders in the country. When I spoke to him recently and I asked him about his childhood, he said that he had been adopted as a young child uh, into the Pakeha family. It was funny, actually. He said it never dawned on him that he wasn't a biological child. He just thought people were like cats and had different kittens of different colors. <laughs> it turned out that his mum would be the abuser, that she would beat him, and beat him so severely that as a punishment, an ultimate punishment, she would lock him in a cupboard for up to three weeks at a time. I asked Robert, what was it like in the cupboard? He said, I loved it in the cupboard. It was the only place I was safe. It was the only place I knew no one else was going to hurt me. One day, Robert, at age eight, thought, I'll go and tell the police what's happening. That sounds like a good thing to do if you're being abused, doesn't it? The police walked him back home and said to his parents, look, next time, just don't hit him around the head. If he would get in fights, even if he'd lose them, he'd often say to the person he'd just lost to, you don't even hit as hard as my mum. And he wasn't even joking. His life had been conditioned to violence. Nobody on the playground could hurt him because he was already getting way more hurt at home. He thought about running away, but he hated the dark and had to choose, what do I hate more, the dark or going home to getting a beating? And he chose going home because at least he knew he could survive a beating. He didn't know what the dark held for him. He'd become the enforcer for the black power. 
And when he became a Christian three years ago, in a radical, unbelievable moment where when he starts to be prayed for, he coughs up blood into a bucket and a 30-year drug addiction is broken in a moment and a criminal life is broken. So much so the black power said, you can't leave, you know too much, but you can be our chaplain. His son said to him, Dad, you used to be ruthless. He said, nah, I wasn't ruthless. I was suicidal. I would go and pick fights hoping someone would kill me. So some people's stories are deeply traumatic. Mine's only a little sort of mildly traumatic. It doesn't matter how deep the trauma is. As my colleague Richard Black says, it doesn't matter if the trauma is with a capital T or a little t. All trauma is trauma. You see, it turns out you don't even have to have trauma to have adopted this idea that there's something about you that needs to be moderated. I want to share one of the most famous stories from the New Testament as we finish today to help you see that it's not even the things that happen to us that are the problem. It's how we think about the things that happen to us that cause us the most pain. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be any trauma involved for us to adopt a wrong belief about us. See, my story and the story of many others meant that I concluded when I heard that I was a terrible son that there was something profoundly wrong with me. And I concluded when my parents were so happy that my schoolwork had improved that the pathway back to having worth was performance. That if I could just perform well enough, I could have some worth. And if others would just tell me that I'd performed well enough, then I would have worth. I wonder how much of a 25-year career on radio stems back to a faulty belief that other people can give me worth. Back to our famous story. Most of us know the prodigal son story, but let me just retell it quickly. So two sons, younger son, gets it in his head that he just can't wait to receive his inheritance from dad and says to dad, Tell you what, let's not wait till you die. How about you give me the inheritance now? Dad says, fine, you can have the inheritance. Son goes off, blows the inheritance, has a great time, and then his situation changes. One day he finds himself cleaning out a pig pen, which is a place a Jewish boy should never be, and realizes, I've lost everything. And listen to the logic of the youngest son. He says, maybe I could go back to dad and be his servant because I'm no longer worthy to be his son. His logic is, my bad performance means that I am not worthy to be a son. My bad performance has eroded my worth as a person. That's his belief. Listen to his words. Father, when he gets home, he says, I've sinned against heaven 
And in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I love Bible stories as a counselor because I can see just how insightful about the human condition God is. As Jesus tells the story, he doesn't have the father try and talk the son out of his feeling. He just responds in light of the truth. He says, guys, it's time to go and have a party. Put a ring on his hand. The ring symbolizes sonship. Put the sandals on his feet. We're going to have a party. My son is home. So most of us are familiar with that part of the story, and we can see that one pretty clearly, right? The youngest son believes his bad performance has eroded his worth, that he's no longer worthy to be called a son. But how many of us have spotted what the older brother does? The older brother, we may remember, gets a little titchy about watching younger brother get a party for having blown an inheritance. And older brother reveals that he too has bought the lie that there is some connection between worth and performance. Look what he says to the dad. Dad, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You hear that? God, haven't I been earning my worth by being good? Father, haven't I been earning my worth by obeying you and doing the right thing? You see, it turns out the older brother believes exactly the same lie as the younger brother, that there is some connection between my worth and my performance. I love these stories so much. How about this for a comeback from the father? My son, the father said, you are always with me and Everything I have is yours. The father speaks directly to the heart of the issue. Son, it was never about your performance. You could never perform well enough to earn worth, and you could never perform badly enough to lose your worth. This was never on the table. But how many of us go through life thinking our worth is on the table all the time, thinking that our worth is up for grabs, afraid that our mistakes have finally ruined it and destroyed our worth, wondering if we've done enough to earn worth and value, and yet, thank goodness, God does not play by these rules. See, it turns out that there is no connection between your worth and your performance. That's not to say performance isn't an important issue. We want to do the right thing. It's just there's no connection between that and our worth. In the type of counseling I do, we uh, deliver and give truth coaches to clients at the end of the session. And truth coaches are designed to be this active way of renewing the mind. Because the mind has adopted this faulty belief that there is some connection between my worth and performance. And so truth coaches are given to help retrain the mind into the truth. The truth being 
Worth is given, not earned. Worth is an inbuilt feature of all human beings. Don't believe me? Hands up who's had a baby in their life so far. Okay, parents. <laughs> there are some teenagers who just did that just to make their parents freak out. <laughs> like, what? What? Now, you used to be a baby. For those of us who remember holding a baby for the first time, I want you to imagine saying this to the baby. Hello, baby. Welcome to planet Earth. You are currently worthless. But hopefully one day you'll do something or say something that other people will recognize as having worth and then you can have some worth. Good luck. Now, for those of us who have been in that moment, we know the opposite is true, isn't it? You looked into the eyes of that baby and you thought something entirely different. You thought, you are the most precious thing I've ever seen. You have worth that is beyond compare. And yet, this baby has yet to do or say anything. You see, we recognize that the default setting of human beings as they come up, come fully loaded with worth. It's that we learn something along the way that forces us to question it. Who told you you were naked? Who told you that there was a problem with you? Who told you that you needed to do something? to get your worth. And so, as you're hearing, it's the truth that will set you free. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like something Jesus would say. Sounds like something Jesus did say. It turns out truth is the antidote to the deep lies that have robbed us of the joy of knowing that we are safe and okay and are able to enter into life without feeling like we have to hide, without feeling like everything is a pole to determine our worth, without feeling like everything is risky in case it goes the wrong way and I lose my worth. We're going to move into a time of communion, and I want to share these final verses with us to have us think about how God himself, the Father, would use truth in the life of Jesus. There's this incredible story at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus where he goes to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And this incredible thing happens that those who are standing in the water say they can hear a voice. That's incredible. And the voice is something remarkable. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Isn't it interesting that before Jesus will begin his ministry, the foundation of his ministry is not, I've given you the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to do miracles, you'll be able to do whatever you need to do, you're powerful. Uh-uh. The thing that Jesus needs to know to begin his ministry is the most foundational belief about who he is, not what he does. 
that this is my beloved son, that when he is secure in his sonship, he'll be able to enter in to the plan that God has for his life. And just as well, because let's be honest, lots of the places he went, people were challenging who he was. Who do you think you are? Son of a carpenter. Never had any formal training as a rabbi. Who do you think you are? He had to know. In order to fulfill the plan of God, he needed to be secure in who he was, not in what he does. And then, amazingly, the night before he will go to the cross, he grabs a couple of buddies, asks them to pray. They, like good friends, fall asleep on the job. But they wake in time to see this moment appear where Jesus has this incredible moment with God as he prepares for the ultimate act of obedience. And what would God say to him in that moment, that moment where he is so terrified, the Bible says, he is sweating blood. So terrified, he is asking God, find another way. I want out. He is scared. And the voice of the Father reaffirms what had been said at the beginning of his ministry. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The question, what was in the heart of Jesus to help him go to the cross for you and I? It was absolute security in who he was. That he knew that his worth was not on the line that he was completely secure. So he was able to do what God had asked him to do. And friends, I can tell you that until you settle the issue of your adequacy, it will be very hard to do what God is asking you to do. Because whatever God is asking you to do will inevitably involve some tough times, some times where it does not go the way you hoped. And if you cannot lean into the truth in that moment, you'll be in big trouble. I knew in my own story that finally some healing had occurred when one Sunday as a pastor, we had our smallest service ever. We could have had it probably in our lounge. Now, my family had watched for years Sunday be a really difficult day to have Dad as a pastor. Because, you see, as long as I thought my worth and performance were connected, if lots of people came to church, wow, <laughs> I'm doing all right, and I'd be happy. But then if we had a low service, oh, then Dad's going to spend the whole afternoon stomping around the house, threatening to quit. I'm going to quit. What's the point in doing this? Nobody wants to come. Then Monday would happen, the repentance. I'm sorry, Lord. Promise to do it again. And then one Sunday, we had our smallest service ever. And about three o'clock, my wife, Debbie, who was obviously afraid, <laughs> pokes her head around the door and says, are you okay? And I heard myself say something that told me I might be on the road to wellness. I said, honey, it's clear to me that 
Maybe our church is not in a great position right now. But I'm fine. And realized that I had finally broken the connection between the way things were on the outside and the way I was on the inside. And I realized that would be the place that obedience could come from. Prior to that, roller coaster. And I wonder, are you on a roller coaster this morning? Things go well, I feel good. Things go badly, I feel bad. Well, if you live on the roller coaster, you're going to get sick because you weren't made to live on a roller coaster. I'm inviting you today as we take communion to step off the roller coaster, to look at the bread and the wine with fresh eyes today, and to see in there, one, thank goodness Jesus was able to hear these words and believe them because he went to the cross for you and I, but to see in this act of sacrifice of God reaching out to pay the ultimate price to win you and I back to himself, that we must be of worth. Jesus put it this way, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his soul? In the scales, Jesus puts the whole world and says it's not even enough for just you. You are of ultimate worth because you are made in the image of the one who is worthy. And if he made junk, what would that say about him? You were that baby, full of worth, and you still are. And this cross and this sacrifice represents a way back to relationship with God where we don't have to hide and be afraid of being seen because we know our worth and our performance are separate things. Let's pray together. Father, as we've spoken this morning, many people will be remembering their story. Some will be remembering trauma with a capital T. Others, some smaller trauma. And others again will realize there wasn't even a trauma, and yet somehow I landed in the same place of believing there was something wrong, something that needed to be hidden, something that needed to be covered over. Well, Father, I thank you that you don't deal in shame and that the cross calls us out of shame for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the one that calls us out of our shame. He says, come, come and be seen. Come and know what worth you have that I would die for you. Come and know that you're made in the image of the one who is worthy. Come and know that you don't need to hide and be afraid to be seen. So as we take communion this morning, let's come and present ourselves before God and say, Lord, thank you that I don't have to hide anymore.
We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.